Can you hear me? Cool. My name's Josh, and I'm going to read to you Genesis 15, which is in page 13 of the Pew Bibles. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will hold, household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites... Um, uh, has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Can I just invite Jeff up, who will be giving the sermon tonight? Oh yeah, please pray with me. So, dear Lord, I pray that you'll be in Jeff's heart, be in all of our hearts. Help, help all of us to listen and hear and understand and 
learn about you and I pray that Jeff will deliver your word truthfully and, and thoughtfully and lovingly. In Jesus' name, amen. These, uh, this passage that we're looking at, is that uh, altering things badly? That's okay? Um, <clears throat> is such an important passage theologically in terms of how you understand what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a person of faith. Uh, it's a, a power-packed passage full of theology. Now, a lot of people uh, continually hear this refrain today, and it's been around since I was a young'un, um, really aren't that interested in this thing called doctrine. It sounds sort of doctrinaire. It sounds like uh, you're rigid. But I'm really convinced, and especially with this doctrine that we're looking at tonight, that unless you get this right, it'll affect every department of your Christian life. It'll affect the joy that you have, the power that you have, the freedom that you have, the authenticity that you have, Doctrine is important. It's what you act out of. Otherwise, we wouldn't be given a text like this. Now, Abram, we pick up this uh, passage, uh, is anxious. You remember last week, he he, uh, really probably bit off more than he could chew when he took on the kings of Elam, the great king, Kilramama. And uh, uh, maybe the Lord has picked up that he's now worried that he's entered the big league and that he could be a target. And so the Lord begins and he initiates this encounter which runs over a night and a day and a night. It's about 32 hours that we're looking at here. And the Lord initiates this and he picks up on his anxiety. He, he is uh, quite anxious. And the Lord says, don't worry, Abraham. Effectively, I'll be your bodyguard from here on in. Abram picks up that the Lord intends goodwill towards him and he has another issue too, which is a burr in his saddle, which is bouncing around in his mind. And that is that it's probably a decade now since uh, he's entered this land. He's getting older, not younger. And uh, the Lord had promised at least the first of an offspring and then many more to come. And he hasn't got the first. And so he wonders whether he's meant to do the sensible thing and that is to use a legal solution which was quite okay in that day that if you didn't have an heir you could go and legally appoint an adopted son as the heir of your estate and he's picked up this uh, uh, probably a favorite servant Eliezer who's from Damascus on his way through into the land he probably picked him up and uh, and Abram's, is that what I'm meant to do? Am I meant to take matters into my own hand now and uh, appoint this guy as my... Is that what you had in mind? And the Lord answers very quickly in verse 4 and basically says, by no way, uh, no, it's, it's going to be a biological heir. It's going to be your own seed. And to reinforce this, the Lord takes him outside on a night such as this and you can imagine on the, the hilltops of memory where Abram is and he looks around not a lot of cloud. And he would have seen, as you would see in central Australia or in, in the country, just that myriad of the Milky Way, going as far as the eye can see. And the Lord says to him, 
He doesn't speak to him with some clincher rational argument where he goes, oh, I can't refute that. He just says, take a look at that. If you can count those stars and you can count the number of kids that are going to come from your offspring. And somehow or other, the Lord spoke to Abraham at a depth. This picture of his heavens were like a sacrament through which God speaks. They're created, but they're more than created. And what the sacrament looks like is what God is doing. And that's what a sacrament is. And that's really how he speaks to Abram this night. But then there's this little pause in play. And in verse 6, we read these 12 fatal words. Fatal is probably not the right word. But uh, I'll think of it as I read it. (laughs) And he says this. And he, Abram... Abram believed the Lord and he, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. My friends, I want to point out that those 12 words are the most important 12 words in the Bible. This is what the purpose of the Bible is, to expand those 12 words. I'm trying to say to you tonight that if you understand those 12 words, then you will be truly a saved person. I'm trying to say to you tonight that if you don't understand those words, then you're not going to be experiencing what Jesus wants for you. The whole basis and crux, the whole box and dice of salvation is in those 12 words that God spoke to Moses to write about Abraham. Read them again. And he believed the Lord, the promise that God had made, both in a pronouncement, in a refutation, and then this sermon in the heavens. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this word, two key words there, accounted and righteous. What do they mean? The old divines used to use the word for counted. It's an accounting term. They use the word imputed. Righteousness is imputed to us. Righteousness was imputed to Abraham. Effectively what God does in this moment, this night, to this little Aramean of no fixed address is that he puts where Abraham has the only thing to offer in his accounting is faith. God puts righteousness. He writes it in the assets column of the book of Abraham's report card in the glories, in the heavens. That is the new paradigm of religion. That is the, 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 the difference Christ makes. And we'll look at what righteousness was put there in that column a little later. But these 12 words revolutionised religion. We're going to have a look at that later on. These 12 words caused there to be a New Testament. These 12 words transformed the life of St Augustine and then later that monk Luther. These 12 words spurred the Reformation into being. These 12 words change the history of the West and wherever these 12 words are preached and understood, whole countries are changed and transformed. Don't underestimate it. 
If you want the books of history that show that, I can give them to you. These 12 words are revolutionary, they are radical, and they're nothing like the religion of the world, whatever the creed may be. In fact, these 12 words changed the life of the Apostle Paul. And he quotes these words in Romans 4, his great manifesto, his treatise of what radical religion is really about. In Romans 4, he speaks these words in verse 3. For what does the scripture say, he says? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a direct lift out of Genesis 15. And he explains it. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due? If someone has got a good record and they're given a gift, then they've earned it, but not so with Abraham. And the one who does not work but trusts, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. That's the nature of the new radical religion that we're part of. Or are we? Now, Abram has been, at that point, declared in the right. Righteousness means blessedness. It doesn't mean forgiveness. You can be forgiven but still not right. Righteousness is a positive status before God of being blessed, of being approved by God. Paul uses it in a legal sense of being acquitted from sin and having status in the courtroom of God as the innocent party. Righteousness is all those things. And that's what Abram is doing. But you see, how's he going to know it? How's he going to know that that's where he stands and how he stands with God? Confirmation is needed. And so the Lord, first of all, gives him confirmation in verse 7 in the form of reminding him of his own story and God's identity. He says, I am the Lord who took you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I've been with you all these years. I'm the same God, Yahweh. What does the word mean? I will bring to fruition what I want. I can do what I promise. I'm that God. I am the I am. I will to do and I will make it come through. This is the same God. You've trusted me so far, trust my name, is what he's saying. But then Abram plucks up courage and he says, well, how shall I know that you're going to do it? And Abram isn't saying, I'm wavering in my faith. Basically, he's saying, this promise that you're talking about, I already know, you've already said it, that's going to happen once I'm dead. Now, my kids are going to have the confirmation, but how do I know that you're going to come through with this promise? Do do I have anything tangible? That's what he's saying. And God doesn't begrudge him that. And so right at that minute, the Lord goes and tells him to do a strange thing, to go and collect some large beasts all the way down to a couple of birds and pigeons. And Abram knows what this is about, The Lord is going to speak a word of promise. He's going to make an oath in the form of a treaty. This is a covenant treaty. And in these days, Abram would have known about covenant treaties. And the Lord wants to speak to him with a metaphor that is so visual, it'll be emblazoned on his mind forever. And the Lord wants to speak to him in cultural terms that come straight out of his vernacular, straight out of his experience, not just heavenly words. 
These words might be foreign to us. They weren't foreign to Abraham. And what he's trying to say is, I am going to make a treaty with you, so get the beasts ready. Daytime comes. Abram goes out and he gets a heifer and he gets all these different animals down to a pigeon. And he's an old guy and he goes and kills them and slaughters them and does a butcher job, slicing them in half, laying them side by side. It goes well until evening when the buzzards start to arrive and think there's a free meal and he chases them away and he chases them away and then we come to this incredible thing that happens. In verse 12, the Lord puts him to sleep. Some sort of strange anaesthetic where he's immobilised but he's still conscious. He can't move but he can experience. Don't understand how. Probably Benji knows something about the some drug out there in the market that's like that. Uh, but it's the nature of the beast. He has fallen asleep and yet he can see what's happening. Because this time the Lord is going to lay down the stipulations of a covenant. Now in a covenant what would happen is that a great king, they called him the suzerain or like an emperor, would take under his wing a, a lower grade king. And he'd make him a covenant partner. He'd become his vassal king. Suzerains and vassals were common in the ancient world. Through a covenant ceremony like this. And what would happen is that then the vassal, if he wanted to to be a covenant partner, be joined to this person like a marriage, then he would take on oath and he'd say some things which were the stipulations of that covenant and effectively this is an oath which is terribly serious and what the beasts are about it's a maledictory oath it's a bad news oath it's saying if I break the stipulations of this covenant if I don't follow through with the one I'm promising let the same thing that happened to these beasts happen to me that's what he's saying pretty serious business. Abram's getting ready to make that statement, to take on board a covenant treaty. Are you with me? And he's already, and God puts him to sleep right at the time when he should be walking through the beasts. And then God instead comes out and he makes a set of stipulations in chapter, in verses 12 through to 16. And he says, Know for certain, this is what I'm going to do. Your offspring will be sojourners in the land that's theirs and there'll be servants there. I mean, you're worried about a delay of a few years. Well, you know, your kids are going to be waiting 400 years to get this land. Not only that, they're going to have a real hardship case in Egypt. They're going to be slaves. I'm telling you before it happens so that you will know, and but they will know that when that's happening to them, the plan is perfect and at work. Nothing has gone off the track. And at the end of that time, read the book of Exodus, book of Numbers, the whole lot. I'll take them out and they'll be rich. They'll go out with possessions. You'll be long dead. You'll be six feet under, pushing up daisies. But they'll come back here in the fourth generation because actually there's another thing happening here. The iniquity of the Amorites and the Egyptians has to be punished. It's not yet complete. I'm marking their card. Now that's an important theological issue that we've got to understand. 
that our God, when we talk about him being holy, he's an active God in the history of humankind. Acts 17 tells us that he apportions the countries and the seasons where nations will rise and go. We're seeing that in our time, in our own Pacific, as one nation's ascendancy is bowing to another. Don't think that that doesn't happen without the will of God having something to do with it. We might not be able to read the moves of the hands of God, but in this case, God was doing holy war. And the, the same time that he was going to save Israel from Egypt, he was going to punish this nation. Now, some of you don't like the terms of trade, of punishment and judgment, but I tell you what, you've got a lopsided God. You can chuck out 90% of the scripture. You can chuck out Jesus Christ if you don't have a God who can judge sin. Our God is a holy God, and he will not let the world get away scot-free. That's not grace. That's an insipid God that's not worth worshipping. That's a God you cannot trust. That's a God without moral fibre. That's a God who is not holy, who just says, boys will be boys. Maybe that's your God, but it's not the God of Abraham. And here God says it's coming and he makes these stipulations. The vassal was meant to make the stipulations, but this one takes the stipulations upon himself. And then this God, when it's dark... Guess what happens? Symbolised as a smouldering pot and as the consuming fire of God, this lamp and this pot pass between the carcasses, halves. And the God of Abraham, Yahweh, takes the obligations upon himself so that Abraham will know that he has nothing to do with the success of this covenant. It's totally on the shoulders of the God whose idea it was. And that is the radical nature of the gospel. That what we stand in is that same sort of paradigm of salvation. Let's deconstruct that again. Effectively what God has done is deconstruct the cultural treaty form and turn it on its head. Here, the suzerain takes the obligations, not the vassal. Here, it's not a bilateral agreement between two parties. It's a unilateral agreement. Only God takes upon himself those terms of trade. In fact, there's no stipulations involved for Abraham. He's the only thing he does. He's the beneficiary. That is the nature. It's an audio-visual of a covenant of grace. Now, covenants of grace did exist in the ancient world. They were called royal grants. They're a totally different animal to the suzerain treaty. The royal grant. And this is effectively, God has said to Abraham, you think that you're living with me on your merits, boy. But it's all gift gift, gift. It's a grant. It comes from my heart and you have nothing to do with it. He's been immobilised. It's an audio-visual picture for us of how we live with the same God. You see, Yahweh, when he had a plan to redeem the world through this man, when God was determined to carry out his will, 
He was not going to design a religious system that would depend for its outcome on our zealousness or our vacillation or our unpredictability. He left nothing to chance. So he set up a system that was built solely, solely on his generosity. It's a statement of security. If I asked you the question tonight, you know, how does salvation really work? I read that I'm saved by grace. We sing a lot of songs about grace. We worship God. We, the, the word just flows off our lips. But the question is, which model are we really in? Are we saved by grace and we get into the kingdom by grace, but then we stay in by our performance? Because most of the Christian world thinks that. It's a heresy of Pelagianism. It's a heresy of Arianism. It's a heresy of medieval Catholicism. And many, sadly today, it's the heresy of Protestantism. It is wrong. We get saved by grace and we stay in by grace. We get in by the promise of God And we're held by that imputed righteousness that's put in our account when we had nothing to do with it and we cannot touch it, we cannot remove it, we cannot induce it. That is the gospel of grace. Let's check that out. Just so you know I'm not pulling your leg about that, we have a slide where I'm going to run through quickly in the next five minutes the whole history of the Old Testament. Are you happy? You're ready? <laughs> I was going to do this as a quiz, but it would take us all night. But here we go. Basically, we have two sorts of religion here. On the left-hand side, we have the conditional covenant of works religion. That's the suzerain treaty version. On the right, we have the unconditional covenant of grace or promise. That is the, the royal grant. The sort of language you find on the left in those covenants is sort of the language of, I will if you do X. You know, this will come true if you follow through with that. The sort of language you get on the right is just, I will or I intend to, and you don't get a mention. That's the nature of the grace of promise, the unconditional. Now, the covenant that God had with Adam in the garden, what sort was it? Well, as I recall, he had a note of obedience. He could do anything he liked as long as he did not. You get to stay in the garden as long as you don't touch the tree. Remember? The knowledge of good and evil. For some perverse reason, Adam and Eve decided they didn't trust God. That position, that point of time when they distrust their maker becomes, it kicks in with the loss of the privilege. The Noahic covenant is the next one you come across in Genesis 9 where Noah is saved through the flood and his family spills out on the earth. After they get out, they're the saved people, right? And God says, I will never do that again. And the symbol he gives is the rainbow, which had not happened in this planet up until that point. It is like a bow with an arrow pointing at heaven. The onus is God's. And then you come across Abram. We won't go into that. We've just looked at it. 
Then you come across Moses 450 years later from this point in time and God sets up a covenant with Israel and he says these things. And I've written it down so I can't forget it, but I could forget to read it. Moses came and told the people all the words that the Lord and all the rules, all the stipulations, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Is that a unilateral covenant or a bilateral covenant? Uni or bi? Bi, two parties. It's conditional. And Moses took the blood, isn't it interesting, just like Abram takes the blood of the carcasses, Moses took the blood of other beasts and he couldn't make the whole of Israel walk through this suzerainty treaty, but they get into a suzerainty treaty with God where they're the vassals and he splatters the blood of the beasts upon the people. And what they are doing is saying, if we break this covenant, all bets are off. That's fine with us. Take us out of the land. And we read again and again in in that book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the second version of that law, that the people are told at that point of time, you're going to break this, you're going to lose the promise. And they said, oh, no, no, we'll take it on. We can do it, we can do it. That's the nature of old religion, of the world's religion. It's pseudo-confidence in their own abilities and it leads to the triggering of the curse of the covenant. Deuteronomy 7, we'll see again, uh, Moses says, just as the people are about to enter the land, they're no longer at Sinai, he says, uh, we have a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, sounds good so far, with those who love him, right? They've got to come through on the other side. To a thousand generations and he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. So be careful what you're asking. Don't be slack, he says. He will repay the slack to their face. Be careful to do all the commandments. And they said, oh, it's a cinch, it's a breeze. And the rest is Old Testament history. Now that's the nature of Deuteronomy. That's a conditional covenant. There are conditions. You get up to David, and King David is interesting. He gets a bee in his bonnet one day, and he decides, you know, it's no good having the Ark of Covenant in a tent. Let's build a, a worthy tabernacle. Let's get a temple, just like the other nations have, and put the box of God in there. And God goes and taps one of his prophets on, on the shoulder and says, go and tell Abraham, you know, <clears throat> he's got no idea. I don't need to live in a temple. Um, I'll tell you what, tell him this. And he tells David, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, a little bit like Abraham, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice it's I, 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 I will, I will. And he shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love, my covenant loyalty shall not depart from him. Is that conditional or unconditional? It's unconditional. It's God alone who speaks. It's unilateral. I will, I will. And we have the promise fulfilled that the son of David, the king from the Davidic line, does come, despite all. Now, Josiah, King Josiah later on, 
8th century, discovers that someone finds the book of Deuteronomy wrapped up back of the temple when they're having spring cleaning and they say, you ought to read this. And the king reads this and he discovers that he is living on thin ice. He's in a fool's paradise because they've been obliterating the law and it's only a matter of time where God says, well, that's it. Game's up. And so he brings a revival of zeal lest God strike them. It's a conditional covenant. But at the same time or a little bit later, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of this. Days are coming, Jeremiah says in 31.30, you can look it up, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Note these words, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Different sort. It's going to be a royal grant. And it's going to be even better than you thought because I'm going to write my laws in the hearts of these people so they long for goodness. They want to be a different sort of people. That's the covenant I'll make after these days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them on their hearts. The very stipulations that God wants become programmed into us. You see, we must understand that there are two sorts of covenants. And the heresies that are floating around Protestantism to this day, I'm talking about the new perspective on Paul, I'm talking about the merger with Catholic ideas, those are a misunderstanding that there are two totally different sorts of covenant. Have I made it clear? And the first one, the conditional covenant, had built-in obsolescence in it. Why did God set up a covenant with Israel like that? It's because he didn't just want Israel to be his people. He wanted the world, the whole stars, the whole galaxy of saints to be his people, not just Israel. It had to be put to bed eventually. It had to fail. Read the New Testament. And so when Jesus comes along, what does Jesus say? He links up with Jeremiah. He speaks about the new covenant in my blood. He himself becomes the slaughtered beast. He doesn't just walk through it. He becomes the maledictory oath. And Jesus' own life is the life that splits the curtain in the work of God. Folks, it's no wonder that Paul, in his manifesto, comes with these words in Romans 4, 23, 24. And you see those words? I think they're on the screen. Nearly. <laughs> Paul says, you know what? But the words it was counted to him in Genesis 15 were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, put in our assets column, who believed in him who raised up from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That moment in your history... When you heard the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and was raised to prove that sin has been dealt with, that moment you had that warm glow in your heart, then God wrote in your record book of heaven the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His one-act miracle life, all the merits from that get put into your account. That's what imputation means. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that astonishing? 
So when God looks at you as you're sitting here tonight, if you have simply believed in that promise, not the promise of Abraham had, but this promise, the same righteousness that was put on Abraham's account is put into yours. When God looks at you as you're sitting here tonight, he sees that you've lived a life as meritorious, as honourable, as lovely, as wonderful and as obedient as Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. And that gets put in your record and you had nothing to do with it. You can't get your grubby hands on it. You can't alter it. Folks, that alters everything in your life from that point on. How this works, God set up this night with this little Aramean a train of legal precedent in a pastoral response to a little moment of anxiety that has ramifications right through history until it hits you where you're walking on his earth. It has four ramifications quickly. Firstly, pastorally, it means that if you ever feel insecure in your relationship with God, now we all can suffer from insecurity for various traumatic reasons in our life, but you have no right to feel insecure in your relationship with God. Because he has imputed his righteousness into your account. Anxiety is not a valid spiritual emotion. And the motivation for obedience cannot be insecurity. You cannot do good things. You cannot volunteer as a servant. You can't even be a martyr because you think it might move God to love you, to bless you, to think more positively towards you. That is taken out of the equation. Spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, being holy, putting time aside for God does not make God love you more, does not make him want you more. He cannot love you more than Jesus Christ and you have the righteousness of Christ in your assets column. Those disciplines are purely to act on yourself. They have no bearing on God at all. The motive for worship And why you come here? It isn't that somehow you think if you love God, he might love you or love you more. You don't need to twist yourself into patterns of excruciating joyfulness and think that God needed that to love you. No. This doctrine frees you up to truly worship. Christian worship is purely a response to all the things that God has done for you which you never asked for, but you just believed and received. That is the radical nature that separates Christianity from all that is called religion down through the ages. Now, I am so sure of that. I want to tell you and I want to finish with a story. I'm sorry that I'm going long. I'll give you this shortened version. As a pastor, I've found that the toughest times when I need to know that that is true, when I have need to visualise in my head Calvary, when I need to see the slaughtered beast that is Jesus Christ upon the cross, when I need to be convinced that imputation is the nature of salvation, not my own righteousness, is when people are dying. Years ago, back in the 90s, had a funny thing happen. I was a pastor one day and this new guy came to our church. He'd just moved into the flat over the road. And I thought, I know your face. And it dawned on me that I'd seen him on TV. 
and he was a famous policeman. Uh, John Hill was his name. And he came and he grabbed me after the service and he said, look, I'd like to speak to someone about um, salvation and I'm thinking of being a Christian, but I just want to check I've got it all right. <laughs> you don't usually get that at the door, do you? Wouldn't mind a bit more of it, actually. And uh, so that afternoon I went straight over and I'd found that he had spent the last 32 hours reading his Bible from cover to cover. Now he was used to reading slabs and he had a great memory and we worked through it and I was trying to explain to him about the covenant. And he goes, oh, you're talking about the Moses one. I'm saying, no, I'm talking about the Jesus one. And we went through that and uh, he goes, hmm, okay, where do I sign up? <laughs> He understood. It's so simple to receive a promise from the Almighty. Now, he was a fellow involved at that time, and I didn't realise it. I didn't realise that this guy was the most decorated and effective homicide detective that this state has ever known. In a 10-year period, most homicide detectives only last a few years. So if you're rubbing shoulders with evil so closely, you tend to need a break. He'd been doing it for a decade in which he'd had over 40 convictions. He'd taken 40 killers off our streets. But at that time he was uh, working, doing a bit of an undercover job. And, but he was involved in investigating, you might remember the, the, the Jensen brothers, uh, notorious murderers. Um, they missed getting arrested in a street, I think it was in South Melbourne, by a whisker police car got too late and they were arrested. They went out and killed two policemen the next day just to show they couldn't be touched. That's the sort of people we're dealing with. Now, there was a police raid on the Jensens in the caravan park in Springvale and these fellows, one of them rolled over and pulled a toy gun out and was shot, died instantly. There had to be a police investigation to check that that wasn't set up. And John Hill was the guy who got to do the investigation. And he couldn't find any fault with that investigation. It was a sorry accident to a particularly nasty person. But from that point on, the civil libertarians got their teeth into him and they got on the ear of the public prosecutor and uh, he demanded that John Hill be put on trial for covering up a dodgy investigation. Channel 10, along with the rest of the family of the Jensens, followed him wherever he went, to trial, to the shops, because the public has a right to know. And this guy was already on the end of a very tight string. This ex-Essendon footballer on the night of the grand final that Essendon won against Carlton in 93 went to the park at the bottom of our street. This is a trigger warning. This is not pleasant. If you've ever experienced something like this in your family, I apologise that I'm repeating this and taking you back. But he took his hunting rifle and he got his watch off and he smashed his watch and blew his brains out. I live... I was already on holidays with my family up in Echuca and somehow the police, the family asked if I could do the funeral because they knew we were friends. Of course... Of course I said yes. Left the family at the Murray and came back at the, and uh, came back to do this funeral. We had to do it, not in my church, it wouldn't fit. I knew we were going to get a lot of people. This is a public funeral. We did it at Collins Street Baptist. 
It was a glass panel about where our wall is there and it held three times the amount. The homicide squad were the first there. Channel 10 had the audacity to roll up to film the whole thing and those police were not going to let them in anywhere near that door. There was such emotion in that room that night I could have lit electricity off it that day. It was palpable. And people gave testimonies and eulogies about this guy. He'd been affected by any. And I thought, my goodness, what can I say at such a black moment as this? There was such emotion that after the funeral, all the police that were in that church went and stood out of Collins Street. They went up one block and then right down the next city block, uh, hand on heart, shoulder to shoulder. They stopped the traffic, they stopped the trains while his casket moved by. That's the respect in which this man was held. What can I say at a time like that? It came to me I should be doing what the gospel really is at its heart. I should tell them about the eternal covenant And so I preached on this text from the epitome of grace and light that nothing, Romans 8, the end of that great prayer, Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing shall separate us. Neither heights nor depths, surely this was the depths, nor anything else in all creation, even my own good record, shall be able to separate us from the love of God Because it's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'll tell you what. If you are to give people any hope in this world, you have to know that there are two covenants and they are very different. It happened that that sermon I preached in that time is the only sermon that's ever been printed word for word on the front page of the Victorian Police Gazette. Thousands read that sermon. Three of his former girlfriends became Christians as a result of hearing that covenant explained. Folks, we have nothing to say to the world if we say to them in hours like that, well, he did his best. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ did everything despite our worst. I hope that is clear tonight. I'm sorry I'm so impassioned about this. I'm sorry that we've gone a little over time but I'm not sorry for making that clear because as I leave this church, if there's anything I ever preach that you need to hear, it's that. It's that message that nothing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.